Hey, what is going on everyone? It's me, Mr. Mario, and welcome back to another episode of Mod Chat. In case you do not know, this is a podcast I do here at least monthly in two different forms. First of all, it is available in a video form here on the Mr. Mario 2011 YouTube channel, where you can check this out, of course, with a visual component, because sometimes there is a little bit more show and tell that accompanies these episodes or you can listen to it anywhere you'd like to, audio only, like an actual podcast, since this is a podcast. Simply look up ModChat, all one word, on your favorite podcasting app, host, or provider, and you should hopefully be able to find it. Now, it's not available on all places, but it's available on most of them. Either way, this is a show I try and do here at least monthly, where I take a few pieces of information, I guess news topics you can say, from the world of the ModChat modding community when it comes to game console modding, video game modding in general, and I present them to you all, give my opinions on them, and all that fun stuff. Either way, we have a few topics here for this month, and not all too many, but some things that I thought were pretty cool, and we could just go ahead and get right into this here. The first one here being the almighty PlayStation 3 toolset from developer B. Garville. Now, in case you do not know, this toolset is fantastic. We used to have the PS3 Flash Dumper and Flash Rider, which have not been updated for a while, and that was from the PS3 exploit team. But a few years ago, B. Garville had ended up announcing and showcasing and even releasing here while letting the world access this publicly, his own toolset. It is called the BG toolset, but that's just kind of short for his username. The actual name of this is the PS3 toolset. But the big thing this allows people to do is this allows you to go into your system, uh, dump the NOR or NAND flash on there, which you can verify externally, and then you can patch your system right there within the browser itself to allow it to install a custom firmware. And at that point, you can reboot the system, then install your custom firmware of choice. Uh, this is great because it does not require downgrading. And on top of that, uh, this is all through the browser. So as long as you have a computer to access and transfer files, a USB drive, and a PS3 with internet access, boom, at that point, you can jailbreak your system as long as it's compatible. Uh, but either way, it did get a long-awaited and anticipated update. Uh, not only the toolset itself was updated, but the support was updated, so it is now officially working with firmware 4.89, meaning at this current time, all PlayStation 3s out there can be modified, whether it's with custom firmware, with the PS3 toolset, or using PS3 HIN. Uh, now let's just go ahead and get into this post here where it says here that the toolset 1.2 rollout has been completed and you can find it over on ps3exploit.net slash bgtoolset. Now he's stating here, many of the 1.2 changes are behind the scenes, however there is a few new features to play with other than 4.89 support, like some memory patching options including HAN, uh, which for people who do not know that is the... I know that was short for ethanol, and HAN was essentially the method that was out for a few years where it worked on all systems, but uh, you could re-sign packages and convert like disk-based games that were in folder format to packages and install them on there. Uh, but also memory dumping, extended system information details, and syscon air logs. As far as I know, the issue that led to crashes on page load on certain setups should be fixed, which is very good. 
the file manager tool remains inaccessible for the time being. So does the X registry editor. Sorry about that. I haven't had time to finish all the theming work and didn't want to make users in need of a 4.89 jailbreak wait any longer. Those features will get enabled in a future rollout soon. I wish to extend our collective thanks to all donators on behalf of the community. The hosting renewal target has been reached and the project public access is set to remain open in October. In the coming weeks, Escort Do and I will be discussing our options in regard to a hosting merge for the two PS3 exploit domains. I sincerely believe that it would be in the community's best interests to set up a community hosting project for the long term. We would actually surrender the collected donations in order to join such a hosting solution if it came to be. You guys all need to give this some serious thought if you want to avoid this last minute scrambling situation to repeat itself over and over with all the online services you are depending on at the risk of losing them altogether. What we really need at this point more than anything else is a couple of trustworthy volunteers ready to take care of a hosting project funded by the community. So here we've got a, I guess, uh, not a screenshot, but I guess a photo of the screen that BG has uh, provided here, just showing the tool set running. And he also said, just funny with here, by the way, notice in the attached screenshot, the difference between boot count and shutdown count, 1600 crashes for 7,000 boots. Poor test console, panics a lot. Now looking at the change log here for the memory manager, he added a memory patching preset for hand and debug packages, added memory patching through prepared files using JSON syntax, added memory dumping options per executable file segments or through ranges, and also added testing for unallocated memory before reading any offset to avoid potential crashes. In a next update, UME strict mode will be removed entirely. For the system memory manager, which this is what you would use, or the system manager here, uh, this is what you would use for the jailbreaking process. Uh, he's added system information details and options to save the data to a file, added syscon error logs, added a new patch file download feature to avoid using the limited browser file download feature, and of course 4.89 patching support as well as with the JavaScript exploit framework here, uh, hooked all existing VSH exports available. The entire range of them is available from JavaScript without needing to use offsets. Fix the crashes on page load with certain setups. Thanks to Noobzilla for volunteering to help debug an issue that Escort Do and I could never reproduce or investigate. And many other changes and improvements. This The list is too long to enumerate. So there we go. He also thanked Escort Do for his dedication and patience with testing everything here. Now, I did just want to talk about this here real quick and say that, yeah, I was able to use this update here recently on a friend's system that we picked up, and it seemed to work beautifully. So to not only be Gearvel, but as well as the rest of the PS3 exploit team, seriously, thank you for this. This is awesome that we do have this available. Now, I also do want to highlight in regards to the funding that was discussed, the kind of backstory behind that was when B. Gitterville ended up setting up the PS3 toolset sites to be hosted to the public and such, uh, from what I understand, he had paid for three years of hosting up front. And that three years was going to be expiring here in October. And even though there are donation links that are available for not only B. Gearville himself, but as well as the PS3 exploit team as a whole, it was revealed that they really had they they hadn't even come close to getting to their donation goal over a course of, well, I mean, 
it's been up for a few years at this point and they weren't really able to get to that point. Essentially, it was going to be if the funding was not there to pay for the site come October, the site was going to go offline. It was going to be as simple as that. So thankfully, the funding goal has been reached because this news has been discussed. It has been spread and everything with the come up of this. But that is why his idea of talking about kind of just, you know, volunteers coming together to have an overall site would be a good idea on there. I do also say as well too when it comes down to the services especially with developers like the PS3 exploit team just because these sites and services are available for free does not mean they cost nothing to maintain and host so that is why I always recommend if you do appreciate the work that they do and you have the abilities to do so please donate a little bit where you can and the way I even frame it is imagine if you were okay with either buying the hardware that was necessary or paying someone let's say $50 to modify your PS3 you just ended up doing it for free you know what let's take a small portion of that $10 donate that to the team it does help out so that's why I always say that when it comes to the PS3 exploit videos I work on, talking about them on here, but also just any projects in general. If you do appreciate them and the developers have donation links, support them where you can. Anyways, seriously, this is an awesome update and uh, good for PS3 owners overall. So real cool to see. Next up, real quick here, this was actually from The Flow. Now in a previous episode, I just want to touch on this real quick. Uh, it was talking about the whole BDJB setup here, uh, which is using BDJ, which is Blu-ray Java, as an entry point for a jailbreak for the PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. Uh, now remember, when talking about the jailbreaks there, I'm mainly going to use the PS4 as an example. You need an entry point and you need a kernel exploit. And the entry point we've been using for years has been the web browser using WebKit exploits. Well, here this came out showing you can use the BDJ setup here and exploit that and use that as an entry point. Now, this is not a full jailbreak here, mind you, because this is only the entry point, much like a WebKit exploit we would see, but this does not have a kernel exploit in it. Either way, what the flow had done is he had done at least one or two discussions about this. He released his slides and the community had been working on essentially reverse engineering their way through the slides to see if they could replicate the exploits themselves on here with BDJB. So there's been a few implementations of it, but what the flow ended up doing is he actually ended up open sourcing and releasing his own implementation of BDJB, which is definitely cool to see. Now I have not tried this one out yet and there's no like pre-compiled ISO at least on the GitHub page here, but he has also said at least on Twitter that, hey, pull requests are welcome on here so if you want to contribute to this in any way you can always do a pull request on here but this is just nice to see we also have a new application from Buccanero well actually a, a port I guess you could say here which is the Apollo save tool but this one is for the PlayStation Vita a very welcome addition to the Vita itself now, in case you do not know, it says here that the Apollo Save Tool is an application to manage save game files on the PlayStation Vita. This homebrew app allows you to download, unlock, patch, and re-sign save game files directly on your Vita. 
some features include that it is you know easy to use and i can verify that it is easy to use standalone so no computer is required automatic settings such as auto detection of a user id and account id settings as well as supporting multiple user accounts now for save management here, you do have access to all the files pretty easily through USB or the internal PS Vita memory. Uh, it has a Pram SFO updating, save file patching, imports, exports, and even downloading. That's pretty cool. Let's look at the latest releases here. There's a whole ton here in version 0.8.0 for the first public release here. And just reading off of this, of course, there is save game, import, export, and resigning. There's save data decryption and encryption, save wizard, or I guess uh, save genie cheat code support, Brute Force Save Data Cheat Scripting Support, Save Game Cheat Patches Based on Rin Cheat Codes, Simple Web Server to Download and Backup Saves as Zip Files, as well as miscellaneous tools like RAR, 7-Zip, and Zip Archive Extraction. And there are cheats already for several games on here, which this is cool to see. So for example, Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus, uh, Ridge Racer, let's see... Um, Attack on Titan, Digimon Cyber Sleuth, Silent Hill Book of Memories, Dragon's Crown. This is awesome to see. Overall, it's just a VPK file. Of course, you install that, and anybody who's familiar with uh, Apollo Save Tool should have a fun time with this. Now, here's another cool development that looks like just came out here while I'm recording this, and uh, this is called Stealth Unlocker from developer Motzilla, and this is a plug-and-play mod for the PlayStation 1, of all things. We're going way back to the PlayStation 1. Now, this is similar to what we've seen with Unirom because it states here, uh, this is a project I've been working on for a little while and finally is ready for release. Stealth Unlocker is a ROM to put on a cheat cartridge like the Game Shark, which turns it into something like a stealthy plug-and-play mod chip, as it will allow you to boot, import, and unlicensed discs without installing a mod chip and without changing the way your system looks when you turn it on. There are many methods to play these discs, but this one is very lightweight and stealthy. And the same ROM supports nearly all console regions and versions. The support for Asian consoles is excellent. And just looking at the features here, it works on American, European, and NetEurose consoles. It states here that the CD-ROM drive is unlocked and will boot unlicensed and import discs. Now for Japanese and Asian non-Japanese systems, it states here, Licensed data region lockout on Japanese consoles is removed and will boot PAL and NTSC U disks. That's cool. Uh, CD player swap trick is restored to enable booting of unlicensed and import disks. Now see text file for the swap details and states here that the swap trick performance improvements including correct CD audio track playback and laser calibration. Note, these consoles don't have the secret unlock in their CD-ROM controller, so this cannot be patched in. At that point, I mean, you do need a uh, European or American BIOS itself. It's not going to be in the Japanese BIOS, but this is all cool to see, at least, these here. And it just comes in a zip file. I'm going to like this as well, too. It comes in a zip file that you can download. Now, for anyone who's unsure about what specifically he's talking about here with kind of having a stealthy or plug-and-play mod chip, or even just like the Game Shark chip itself because many people might be thinking of uh, GameShark being like an actual disc itself. That is one of the ways it comes but uh, also if you do not have the final run of the original PlayStation, not the PS1 like the slim one but the original PlayStation, if you have one of the not final models but if you have one of the models that has the parallel port in the back 
you can use a device like this. And typically, these are just uh, GameShark cartridges, uh, which you plop them in, and when you boot up the system, as opposed to going to the standard PS1 BIOS and everything, uh, you're greeted with a different menu where you can pick a game, pick your cheats that you want to enable, then you pop in the disc and you boot it up all from there. Of course, these can also be utilized uh, not directly. You do kind of have to do a little bit of a swap and everything, but the point is they can be utilized to play backup games. Now, several years ago, backups and imports, but several years ago, what I'm saying is uh, Unirom became flashable on here. That's the main one that people flash over to these devices, and really, you just need a PS1, like the original console, with a parallel port. You need one of these cartridges that is compatible, and you need a way to boot up a burned game on there because you burn Unirom to a disc. I guess you could flash it through here, but I just do it through the PS1. Then once you get it booting, you can reflash the cartridge itself and you turn it into essentially a plug and play mod chip. Now, Unirom is great unto itself, although there are some limitations on it. Not only when you boot it up, it has a completely different interface on there, uh, but on top of that, it was also really important talking about the NTSC-J systems because there are a lot more limitations on NTSC-J systems with doing everything on here, whether you're installing a mod chip physically on there uh, or even using uh, free PSX boot or uh, Tony Hacks, any of those. So it's nice to see these extra things on us. I've also been saying that typically when you boot this up, it boots into a completely different interface. That is something cool with this implementation as well, too, and that's why it's stealthy, I guess you can say, uh, because it seems that this runs, like, you plug it in, it works, but you have access to the original PS1 BIOS and everything, so it looks like a properly working system. Like, that's super cool. So, it's cool to get some uh, extra usage out of these, and I, I will have to install it on this probably give it a shot. Now here's something that was unexpected and I'm really happy that when it was finally like teased and shown to the public it was only going to be releasing a few days afterwards and it is now out to the public but this is PicoBoot from developer WebHDX. Now just reading this GitHub here it states here this is a long-awaited IPL replacement mod chip for Nintendo GameCube. It's open source, cheap, and easy to install. Features, it's open source. It uses a $4 Raspberry Pi Pico board, very easy installation, only 5 wires to solder, programmable via USB cable without any drivers and programs, automatically boots any Dole app of your choice, and it uses IPL injection, for anyone who doesn't know that's initial program load, uh, approach superior to mods like the Xeno GC, and we're going to get all into that. So you do need to have the Raspberry Pi Pico for this, of course. You need a SD card or micro SD card, depending on which device you're using, and you'll need a SD Gecko or an SD2 SP2. At this point, you flash the Raspberry Pi Pico board, you set up your micro SD or your SD card, you do the installation itself on your GameCube, and at that point, you're pretty much all good to go. Now, I'm actually running this right there in the background. I had to move my finger properly because, you know, video preview and all that stuff, but uh, I'm actually running this in the background already. That GameCube has been modified with one of these, and this here is a super awesome little device that has been getting more and more love here in the modding scene. This is all it is. This is the Raspberry Pi Pico, and this one I believe also does have Pico Boot installed on here, but 
As it was said on here, you end up flashing this, which is super easy to do. You then solder up five wires to this. You solder them to the accompanying points on the GameCube itself. And then you do need a device to play and run, I guess, not only your games and homebrew, but just to interface a SD card with on the GameCube. We're not talking about a GC loader. The GC loader is great. I do have one of those. I love them. Uh, but when it comes to this, no, you're going to be using a SD to Gecko, which is essentially... Um, it's pretty much a memory card to SD card adapter. This is a real memory card, but it's one of the adapters here, which you can use a SD card with, or the SD2 SP2, which I'll show you. I've had this GameCube here sitting on the side. Uh, there is a, well, there's a few ports on the bottom of the GameCube, in case you've never looked for them. And there is a serial port two here, which was never used. And here we have the SD2 SP2, which this little device here, it quite literally just pops into the bottom of the GameCube like this, you pop your micro SD card into it and you put all your applications, your homebrew, your games, everything on there. And it just works super well. Now, this is great because, oh, and by the way, this uh, this GameCube here, uh, this one is not mine. This is actually one that a friend and I picked up. We picked it up for him because he's been wanting a GameCube. We found it for 40 bucks and uh, I said, hey, because of this project, I don't really need another GameCube, but I definitely want to try this project out. So it's great for setups like this, where the nice thing is this is a complete GameCube and we have added extra functionality to it. Now, I will just kind of share my experiences and such installing this as long as you can solder, I guess, well enough. Um, it seems to be pretty easy to pull off. Uh, I will say that if you're going to do uh, much like many people like 30 gauge wire, it didn't work for all of my points, and it even covers that in the documentation as well, too. My Pico would not work until I wired up the uh, 3v3 point, so the power point, uh, with 26 gauge. That was a 26 gauge wire. And then I also did that to ground as well, too. So if you want to, you can do three of the points as 30 gauge, and then you could do the other two points as 26 gauge or higher. That's kind of just my advice on there. Uh, either way, though, installing this seemed to be easy enough once I kind of got over that hurdle. I will also say, when you install this here, uh, now IPL Boot is on here, which will allow you to boot up a, a any other program on launch, pretty much, as opposed to booting up the standard GameCube BIOS. You're booting up a program from a, you know, SD card, a micro SD card. That's what this is here. Now, if you install all this and you turn on your GameCube and it works as normal, uh, don't panic. That just means that you do need either a SD Gecko or you need one of these here, the SD2 SP2, and you need your card configured. So it is not optional, it is required. I was thinking it would be maybe a little bit of a different interface or maybe just even a different boot process that I saw, but no, uh, you do need to have this. So the nice thing is as well too, for some people who they want to install this, but they're not sure and they still kind of want to be the purest about it, I could actually even say, if you have one of these and you're thinking about installing it and you're not sure like when you want to use it or you don't want to use it all the time, you actually don't lose out on anything just installing this. Like quite literally, if I took this, installed it in this GameCube and did not have any type of SD card or micro SD card attached to it, it would operate like a completely standard GameCube. And that's also another thing as well too, for some people who I know the... In my opinion, the GC Loader is the best way of playing GameCube games on the original GameCube because it really just carves out the optical drive and you load everything from a SD card in there. 
There are people who they want the ability to play their discs on there, whether it's just they don't want to remove any functionality or they still want that authenticity. And this allows for it as well too. So this thing, it does not have any functionality removed is what I'm saying. It only has functionality added. Lastly, this is better than the Xeno GC because the Xeno GC and other drive chips are just that, they are drive chips. You see, this is the main thing about it. The idea is you want to boot up into a homebrew program called Swiss. And Swiss is essentially just your Swiss army knife, so to speak, which is why it's called that. But it is a simple and easy to use menu setup kind of interface that allows you to boot up your homebrew, boot up your games, uh, change the settings on your games and the programs and everything themselves. Uh, so for example, on mine, like I have, well, I guess this one here, we do have a HDMI adapter on here and I have it set. So any game that is launched through Swiss, just force 480p mode on it if you can. So things like that are really nice to have. And there's also cheat support and just so much other stuff that Swiss has to offer. The point that I'm saying here is when you have a GameCube and you're looking to modify it, your main goal is to boot into Swiss. And typically what people would do is they would install a Xeno GC, which is a drive chip. You install it to the optical drive itself, like on the drive board itself. And what that does is it allows the GameCube to play burned games and imported games. Now imported games, all good. But since you can play burned games, the idea would be you burn Swiss to a disc, you pop it in here, close it. So you then turn on the GameCube, it reads Swiss from the DVD drive after a few seconds, and then you can play games from a memory card or from the SD2 SP2 on the bottom. This is the nice thing because you don't have to worry about the disc anymore at that point. And on top of it, you're also noticing that GameCube back there has been running. Uh, that GameCube is actually in pretty poor condition. That is a system that was purchased broken by a friend of mine uh, that's been sitting in my basement for a few years now, just hasn't been used. And that was another contender where I said, hey, you know what? The disk drive on there doesn't work or anything. It's not working well. It doesn't look all that good. This is a great contender for this, and I'm able to play games on that just fine. So even if you're a person who you don't want to run discs at all, or you have a GameCube that doesn't have a properly working disk drive, this is an amazing solution. I I have nothing bad to say about this. Like, once you get it all dialed in, which there's not all too much dialing in there, you just, again, you need your micro SD card or your SD card. But once you get everything set up, I'm talking a lot about this because I really like this project. Like, WebHDX, you did a fantastic job with this. So seriously, shout out and thank you to you for making this and releasing this to the public. Like, this is awesome to see. Oh, and of course I was talking about support earlier in regards to projects and even with PS3 exploit, but that still stands true for just projects in general. If you want to sponsor this project, there is a coffee link, a PayPal link, and as well as GitHub sponsor. Now at the end of these episodes, I do like to cover something that I think is cool or funny or interesting or just out there in the world of modding. And I thought that this was cool and it's kind of a bit of a tangent on here. And you know what? We're getting political here in this episode of Mod Chat at the end, but I think this is a good thing to get political about. This is from Niche Gamer, and I actually even had to double and triple check this. I was like, wait, wait, this is a legit article, legitimate site and everything. Um, 
because it is unbelievable, but in the best way possible, it states here, uh, new politician Ken Akamatsu creates task force to preserve classic games in a playable state. Now, stating here that Ken Akamatsu, the first manga artist to enter the realm of politics in Japan, has wasted no time since winning his election on July 11th. The newly minted politician has announced via Twitter the creation of a new task force to investigate and support the preservation of classic video games in a playable state. Yesterday at 8pm, the Digital Archive Society's Legal System Subcommittee's Digital Rights PT, Akamatsu said, a select team of experts has been formed to start working on legal preservation of past games in a playable state. He added, the archiving and utilization of old content that is being lost in an area which I have a strong passion. I want to make this a success. Ken Akamatsu ran on a platform of supporting freedom of expression in Japan, a staunch defender of Japanese artwork, and critic of foreign elements attempting to dictate how Japan should be run. It would make sense that Ken Akamatsu would take up the mantle of supporting game preservation, especially as a growing number of gamers and collectors alike are attempting to take up the mantle themselves. So there you go, a short and sweet article about it. I have nothing but positive things to say about this. Uh, I do love, I, I support game preservation. I have talked about this not only here, also on the channel, but also on my other podcast, Mario's Minute. And I think one big aspect here as well too is he's talking about preserving these and keeping them in a playable state and this is something that i've talked about as well too in regards to preservation efforts now this is something not on here but on mario's minute i did discuss when a few months ago it was in pretty recent history uh sony ended up spinning up and officially announcing their own game preservation team and I was telling people i said I i'm not trying to poo-poo on their efforts or anything but do not expect all too much, if anything, to publicly come of this. Because you have to realize that preservation is not accessibility, and accessibility is not preservation. Preservation can be accessibility, and accessibility can be preservation, but they're not always going to be the same. Something can be accessible, but that doesn't mean it's preserved properly. And something can also be preserved, but that doesn't mean it's going to be accessible to the masses. So what I was kind of trying to just quell any type of, I guess, expectations on with that was I was saying, look, don't expect to fire up your PlayStation 5 and suddenly have full PS1 and PS2 backwards compatibility where you can pick up any game off your shelf if you have them on your shelf and just pop the disc in and start playing. Like, no, that is not what this means. More what I'm thinking this means is they're probably going to archive and preserve uh, maybe old source code, old documents related to it. Uh, maybe, I'm sure, check that their actual game backups and ISOs and everything are proper uh archive any other development builds of this even having like really cool like original working artwork from these things as well too i'm just thinking like even artwork in the manuals and such and just getting like the original working files for those and making sure those are in a safe place that is kind of the idea that i'm thinking that this team would have so that is why i do like this here where he's saying that he wants them to be preserved but you know keeping them in a playable state not just having the source code somewhere where it is going to be safe but we're not going to be able to touch it at all or really reap any public benefit from it is what i mean so either way this is awesome
I think this was a good reason to get political, right? Right, Lily? Right? I think she agrees. Anyways, that's about it for this episode of Mod Chat. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all liked listening and watching. And typically at the end of these episodes, I do like to pick a keyword or a key phrase, which you can use in the comment section on the upload here. If you're listening to this, don't worry. You are not going to be excluded. You can come over to the YouTube upload and you can use this word or phrase in the comment that you leave. Hopefully you leave one. And I'll know that you've made it to the end. And let's see what I want to use. How about memory card? How about that? Uh, do you like memory cards? Do you hate memory cards? Uh, me personally, I see the downsides of having memory cards, but there's just something so nice and nostalgic about them for me. I don't know. I still... It's a weird warm fuzzy feeling I have when using memory cards and all that except uh, the original PlayStation memory cards make sure you have a lot of those on hand uh, because 15 blocks was never enough it was never enough <laughs> anyways uh, yeah if you use the phrase or the term memory card in your comment on the YouTube upload of this I'll know that you've made it to the end anyways this is Mr. Mario signing off thank you all for listening and watching everyone until next month, until next time, until uh, Lily stops itching there. She stopped itching. Thank you all for listening and watching, everyone.